The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Acts 12, 1 through 25, it's on page uh, 1104. Um, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who had belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to the guard by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in a cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing. He had no idea that the, what the angel was doing was really happening. Sorry, He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed for the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she, was, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she, when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with some people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After Securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. This is the reading of God's word. I probably shouldn't have just scheduled my daughter to do the scripture reading because now I'm overwhelmed um, with some emotion and I've got a frog in my throat and my microphone is on. So could you mute me for a minute? I take her to college this week and uh, um, yeah, sorry, I just dropped that on you. So now no matter how bad my sermon is, I just want you to think about taking my daughter to college this week Um, and you're going to be, wow, that was the best 
teaching ever. Um, uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, and for those of you that are new, it's going to seem a little bit difficult to understand fully what's happening in Acts 12. Because Luke, I'm, I mean, the more that we've been in this, and the more that I've, I've looked at the gospel that bears his name, Luke, and the letter of Acts, I am falling in love with Luke's writing style. Um, he is passionately writing to a friend. It's like both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written to an individual. So I, we receive it as him writing to an entire audience of people and the entire church. Like he's thinking about us in the year 2018. And he's, but no, he was thinking about a person. And, there, and as I was preparing in Acts 12, I, I read a few theologians that basically get paid to study the scriptures for their entire life. And, and there's some valuable things that you can find from these brilliant scholars and there's a, a high argument that's been made that the letter of Acts was actually written, that what motivated Luke to do it and to send it to this friend was because this friend was going to bear testimony at Paul's trial in Rome. And he was trying to help set the friend up to defend Paul in front of Rome so that Paul wouldn't be executed. And all this. So now, again, that has nothing to do with this particular passage of Scripture other than the fact that I just want to say to you, there is so much more at work here than you and I right now sitting in this room can even begin to process. So the best thing that I want to do today is help us get fully present in it because most of you are arriving at church today thinking, I just need to get to church. Like you're really not wanting to say, I'm really here to learn or I can't wait to get into Acts 12. You know, most of us didn't arrive that way. Most of us came because we just knew we needed to be here. We needed to be present. We need to find community. We need to find a place where we can explore our faith. And then some, so some of you, are believers in Jesus already, and others of you don't yet believe. And then others of you would say to me, well, I believed once, but I'm not sure I believe anymore. And then others of you are the exact opposite of that. Well, I didn't once believe, but now I think I believe. And we have everything in between. And so how does Acts 12 then inspire us? Well, here's a couple of things. I want to work backwards from Herod's death towards the execution of James. Now, let me just start by saying this. For you men... You did not want to be called James because everybody in Israel in the first century that was male was called James. If you were a James, you were constantly in the commonplace turning around because somebody is saying, hey, James, and you're just turning around. And you're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm talking about James of Alpheus, not James of Zebedee or the, the James of Damascus. Or the, every male was named James, and then there was some sort of family disclaimer. And so in the book of Acts, there's three specific Jameses. James, the half-brother of Jesus, James of Zebedee, and James of Alpheus, and all these different Jameses that have a huge impact and so when you think about this James that's being executed, it's not the brother of Christ that wrote most likely the letter of James in the New Testament, um, but yet it is a very significant leader in the early church. And so Luke, in, Luke in, in his writing in Acts 12, is kind of writing towards the midpoint. Because after Acts 12, the, the 12 disciples really aren't mentioned anymore. So if he's walking through church history, this first about 40 to 60 years of church history, this particular chapter is almost the sign of an end of a leadership era. 
This is also the chapter where if you literally take the words of the, the commission to go and to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world, and you take that literally, like we're going to start in Jerusalem, then we're going to go to Judea, then we're going to go to Samaria. This chapter 12 has gotten us from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria. Chapter 13 gets us to the uttermost parts of the world. So if you're looking at Luke's writing, we're finding that he's literally been progressing. And then if you take another perspective, you realize that he's been through the gauntlet of the early church oppression. So it started with, obviously, the crucifixion and the ascension of Christ and then the commission for them to go. The Spirit came and they started preaching with power. The religious leaders started to persecute them. And then a select group of those religious leaders, the Pharisees, made it their their commitment to purge. They weren't called Christians at the beginning of Acts. We didn't get to that until last chapter. But what they called these new life people... Um, they were trying to, to squelch that. And so they were surviving the religious persecution. They were surviving the Pharisees. And then the Pharisees of all Pharisees, who? Saul, is converted. So they go from fleeing Saul, being chased out of their homes and some of their relatives being killed, to now sitting in church being taught by him. Slightly awkward. Could you imagine what that would have felt like? I mean, imagine if some of you in this room have actually felt the physical violence of Baltimore City. You've personally tasted it. Imagine if I was the one that had assaulted you. And now I'm the one telling you, let me tell you what it's like to follow Jesus. It's different. Like, this is what the early church was facing all up to Acts chapter 12. And then you have a a grandson of Herod. Like the brutal Herod that killed all the two-year-olds in the in the Christmas story is the grandfather of this Herod, and his and his dad was one of the many sons, another Herod. Now it's very confusing. Like you don't want to be a Herod and you don't want to be a James, because you're just going to be guilty. Are you that Herod? Are you? Well, listen, all the Herods were bad and all the Jameses were good in Scripture. So let's just call it that. But this particular Herod um, was. One of the Herods that obviously had a serious, um, uh, just a deviant side. Like the, like the Herods were always cursed with this sense of who's out to get me. And I want to get them first. That's kind of like a great way of summarizing the Herod family and how they led. And so now the early church in Acts 12 has survived the Herods in their local Jerusalem. I mean, he's brutally just dies from disease. It's kind of a grotesque way, a quick summary of how he passed. But here, the early church has gone through all of this. And so Acts, up to this point, has been the early church working every angle of, of relationship restoration. Let me just tell you what that means real quickly. Jew and Gentile. That means the Roman soldier that now believes in Jesus is now worshiping with the, Christ, with the follower of Jesus that's Jewish, and most likely that Roman soldier has probably crucified one of their relatives, right? So that's bringing together in the church, Jew and Gentile. That's been happening in the book of Acts. Men and women now are worshiping together in the book of Acts. 
we don't necessarily taste that as fully, even though there's still a lot of, of pressures regarding that in our culture today. But yet we don't fully understand the, the, the bridge that Christ built between men and women because we've had 2,000 years to at least start to make some progress. And when you begin to look at these tragedies, I mean, even before Saul's conversion, he had killed deacons in the church, Stevenses and other leaders, and even he ran women out from their families, we find in the story of Acts. And so, so much they'd been facing tragedies and disasters and tragedies and disasters, and then moments where you'll get a verse, like in chapter 9, well, after Saul sailed away to Tarshish, they experienced um, a season of peace and prosperity, and they were, their numbers were being added to every day. You want to know why? Because people wanted to come to church because Saul was gone, right? Exactly. He's like, yes, it's okay to come to church because you won't be killed or drug away, right? But there's places in, our, in the world today where that's still happening. We don't feel it here because we can come in the comforts of an air-conditioned room and in the beauty of an environment like this, and only thing that we're concerned about is, is did I leave anything out in my car that somebody might smash a window and take, right? That's what we most felt on the way in today, not of our own life. And so the early church was going through all this, but they, but they have begun to taste the kingdom of God, the mission of God, pushing through all of those tragedies, all of those pressures, and that it was taking root, and it was growing, not just in Jerusalem, but it was growing in Judea, it was growing in Samaria, and what we began to find with the, with, the, with the city of Antioch in Syria, just to the north, it's now starting to get to that places around the world, that the pressures of tragedy and death and in hardships were not stopping the good news of a resurrected Jesus, a good news of life brought to ability to bond people in love in a way that is beyond most people's wildest imagination. But yet when we read the scriptures, it's so easy for us to just say, I wish this was true for us. And we don't understand the pain of what it would have been like to be in the first century church. The hurt the emotion, the abuse that men and women were all experiencing, people of different ethnicities, all of them were experiencing. But when they got together, they were overwhelmed by the joy of the Lord as a way of, of like pressing through. Now, I use two words to define, to actually title this teaching. It's remarkable and inscrutable. And I had to look inscrutable up. It's not a word I generally use in my vocabulary. My, yeah, my wife is like, okay. I mean, usually one to two syllables is what really gets me. And in, in, in bananagrams, I usually don't have multiple syllable words. You know, um, it's, it's just not the way that I'm wired. But I put the definition for inscrutable up here. Impossible to understand or interpret. Now, let me come back to the two words. Go back to the slide with both words on it, remarkable and inscrutable. This is Acts. These two words are describing, in my opinion, what Luke has been writing about with the first people that were called Christians. These were the words that came to me as I was reflecting on Acts 12 
And I think they're great words for us. The problem is, because of the generation in the church where we now live, we crave the remarkable, but we can't stand the inscrutable. We want to give an answer for everything. Now, let me just ask you this. I don't know if you have friends that are this way or family members this way, but do you ever feel like that you can't tell your friend anything new? Yeah, I knew that. Oh, yeah. I heard that. I know that. Yeah, well, I, yeah I know the, the, what the 10 millionth planet, you know, star system away, whatever. I mean, it's like no matter what it is, they know it. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing every time I say something, yeah, I know that. I mean, because we live in a generation where we don't want to not know everything. We want to have an explanation for everything. Now, the one place that I am finding, especially in, in this generation, is with as many people that are in the medical field, we don't mind telling people that we don't know how to plunge the toilet or we don't know how to fix plumbing or you know, patch a hole in sheetrock. Like, we'll call a guy for that, right? You know, it's like, oh, I don't have any tools for construction, but I know everything else. That's kind of what's <laughs> happening. But going back to this definition, let me put it up there one more time for you, inscrutable. Impossible to understand and interpret. This is what hit me, and this is why I started at the end with Herod, and I want to work back to the beginning. Because where does this chapter start? James is run through with a sword. But yet we focus on Peter at the gate being left, and there's almost like a comical scene. Like this servant girl, oh, Peter, stay here. I mean, Luke is, it's like he's writing in um, this incredible amount of humor into a chapter in the midst of, James was run through with a sword. And it was okay, I mean, it's like the way Luke writes this, it's like, it's okay. There's no explanation about suffering, about God's plan why some live long lives, why others live short lives. Why, would, why was it okay for James to be run through with a sword, but yet Peter has this miraculous, angelic um, um, moment in the middle of the night where he's chained to two um, Roman soldiers, and in the process, the, I almost view it like, um, like some sort of um, moment where the soldiers wake up in the morning and they're chained to each other. You know, like the angels took them off of Peter and hooked the two soldiers together and they wake up tugging on each other and then they realize, wait a minute, where did, where did Peter go, right? But yet, then the servant girl that obviously recognizes Peter because Peter was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He wasn't just a staff. He wasn't the one, I mean, he was the one that stepped out of the upper room and just walked from Genesis all the way to Jesus in a sermon. Thousands of people were growing. Jewish people were gaining understanding. But yet James was run through with a sword, and Peter has a testimony of, I was chained, and an angel came, and then this servant girl's like, we're in here praying, Lord, please release Peter. I hear a knock at the door. Peter! And then she goes in and is insulted. Oh, you're just a servant girl. You don't know what you're talking about. 
I mean, like, ladies, how many times have you felt that way, right? Like, oh, you know, I, I, I have something to share with you. I know what's real. And, like, no. I mean, she was literally almost humiliated. Like, oh, no, you're just a servant girl. How, what could you know? And if it is him, it's, it's his angel protector, you know, or, you know, or he's already died and you got visited by a spirit, you know, kind of a deal before. I mean, so she's going through all this stuff. Like, no, wait a minute. Why did I leave him at the gate? Like, it would have been a lot easier for her to let him in and to be like, Peter! You know, I mean, so Luke is doing so much, and it comes back to this, impossible to understand or interpret. If we are going to mature as followers of Jesus this next year together, we are going to have to come to grips with this. Because the majority of us end up stopping altogether or changing course because there's something we don't understand or interpret, can't interpret. So even though the Bible has been clear through the Old Testament and New Testament that God's thoughts are way beyond our thoughts, that his, his capacity for understanding far exceeds our capacity for understanding, you and I still think we're as smart as he is. We still think that we should be able to understand God. And I want to say directly to those of you that have been Christians for a long time, or you've had any type of theological training, or you've been just intent in your studies, caution to you. If you think you have God figured out, you're in serious trouble. If you think you know every theological issue in the Bible inside and out and you can't be taught anything new or you, you've got it mostly figured out, I just want you to understand you are on a very dangerous ground. And we've got to be really careful that we don't just read past chapters like Acts 12 and understand that the early church knew our pain probably more so than many of us. And they continued to remain faithful to their calling. And when the book of Acts or any other letter in the New Testament says they need to remain faithful to their calling or they were empowered to fulfill their calling, what is the universal calling of everyone that's following after Jesus? You have to make disciples and tell people about Jesus. That is your calling. Some people are like, well, my calling is to be a doctor. No, God is giving you the freedom to walk in an occupation. But the calling of every believer, as mentioned in the New Testament church, when it's spoken to the church, is that you and I are commissioned to tell people that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And there was no amount of conflict, tragedy, persecution that stopped the early church from continuing to tell people that Jesus was king, that he was resurrected, that he was Lord, even though the Herod who claimed to be Lord was trying to kill them. That's why they picked James. 
Herod was such a coward. He didn't go straight for Peter, the head of the church. He went to James, who was a recognized leader in the church, but not the head leader of the church, ran a sword through him like you would somebody that was challenging the throne. That's why Stephen was stoned, but James is run through with the sword because the religious leader stoned you for false teaching, but like kings would run you through with the sword saying, no, you are not king. And so he's using James as a test dummy, for lack of a better way of putting it, to see how the Judeans would respond. So he runs James through, realizes that the Jewish people are like, oh, that's great. We want to be gone with those Christians. And so look, Herod is now helping us. So he was winning points with religious people that wanted the the followers of Jesus to be eliminated. So then he's like, oh, I got points for killing James. Let me go after Peter now. And you and I fail to understand here is Peter, imagine what this would have been like for him. He's taken into captivity, which he's been taken into captivity before. He's been persecuted before. This time he's set free by this angel. He shows up at this house. There is a massive celebration. But then what does Luke say? He disappeared. So one day he's teaching and everybody's listening. And the next day for the sake of the church... For the sake of his own life, he had to pass it on to James, the brother of Christ, and just walk away from it all. Now, we know that he walked away and he still continued to build and to do, but he, he had to go from this public life of ministry where everybody's like, oh, Peter's here. I can't wait. It's Peter. You know, it would be sort of like the Hillsong movement. That's a global church, right? And the, the pastors of Hillsong are up teaching in front of thousands. Like they plant a church in New York and 10,000 people show up. We plant a church in Baltimore and 10 people show up, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, really? There's a Hillsong coming to Baltimore? Sorry, Ellis, right? Um, <laughs> but that's what happens, right? There are certain, certain people that, but this is the deal, Peter could have gotten so comfortable in the audience being about him that he could have done great damage to the early church. But he humbly walked away so that they would keep life. He's like, you know what? James can do just as good a job as I can do. It's time for James to now step in and lead. And Luke, I guarantee you Luke knew where he went, but he's just saying, you know, hey, I got to protect him. I got I, we, we have to we have to guard him because there's still a purpose for him, but we need to let him get into the shadows for a little while. So what do we do with all that? This is something that I think is really important. Is the same God that loved us and sent Christ, we can step into Christ. The same God that allows us to step into Christ still gives us the same spirit that was with Christ. And Paul summarized it in three words, wisdom, power, and revelation that come with the spirit to the church in Ephesus. So that same formula, Father, Son being in him with our belief in Christ and the power of the spirit that comes with that is the same spirit that's at work, the same formula that is happening in Acts 12, is available to us today.
And one of our struggles is, is that we don't do anything because we're crippled by our lack of understanding. And so we want to know everything that God's doing and why some people die and some people don't. Why are some people born into poor families and why are some people born into to rich families? Why are some people born with some... Um, what we would call gen- gender identity issues um, that we're going to talk about in September? And why are other people confident in their heterosexuality? Why are some people that are like born into um, countries where they have a choice about their occupation and other people that only do what their parents did and there's no other options? Right? And so we get into situations where we want to understand all of that. And I just want to say the enemy wants us there. He doesn't want us to walk in confidence and power because the first thing to go when we are confused or when we are crippled in our mind is our number one calling. The enemy wants you to do a lot of things but he does not want you to talk about Jesus to other people. And if he can keep us confused, he can keep us wounded, he can keep us hurting, then you and I are going to remain silent. And he's sitting back saying, I could care less if, you're cure, if you cure cancer. I could care less if you, um, you know, figure out Baltimore City traffic patterns. <laughs> I could care less if you build nice bike lanes and beautiful parks in the city. But if you stop talking about Jesus, I've I've won a victory. And so Acts 12 now is going to transition us into an era in the church where they truly believe that the tomb was empty and no amount of death, no amount of pain, no, no amount of confusion was going to stop the fact that Jesus was king, Jesus is Lord, not any other human being, not any other God was before him, And they were going to continue to run. And so here I put as a closing slide for us of what I feel like is the recipe in Acts 12, the grace of God and the prayers of the church. Because some of you immediately upon hearing Acts 12 immediately went to the moment of prayer. And And I would hate to say with a show of hands, but it probably would be good for us to do a show of hands. But I would like to ask, you know, this is rhetorical, so please don't physically respond. This is solely a mental exercise. But how many of you heard that they prayed and Peter was released in a miraculous way and said, God doesn't answer my prayers? I mean, there are some of you probably in here that heard that in the chapter and immediately went to, my prayers aren't answered. And I just want to say to you, maybe you fall into the camp of James's family. So can we rectify that God was equally involved in James's life as he was in Peter's life? No. No, we can't. Let's be honest. James got the bad deal from an earthly perspective. And I could talk all day long about how it was a joyous act of worship to be run through with a sword. And most of you in here would be like, that is just a bunch of bull. He died by sword. It hurt. It hurt his family. People grieved. Peter, totally different. 
But let me just say this to those of you that say that you've prayed and just ask one challenging question to you, especially those of you that it immediately jumped off the page to you. And I don't mean any offense by this. Do you really pray? I think a lot of us think that we pray. But I really do feel like what we talked about last summer, um, last year's 2017, is that the majority of us are only thinking to ourselves. But we call it praying. We're talking to ourselves, and God's like, can I chime in? I believe that this chapter in Acts 12 is a great picture of a church that was immature, People were, were, were praying. Some probably weren't. It's really, if, you, if we took the time and spent more time out on it today, we would find that, man, we could really identify with the immaturity of a lot of these people. But when was the last time that you wanted somebody freed that you gave up an entire night laboring in prayer? Um, most of us will pray for ourselves. But when we really learn the value of a resurrected tomb, we really do start praying for others. And I, it is a desire in me to not only teach us well this year, I want to set good examples. We have got to grow in our prayer life as a church. And it can't just be the same four or five guys that pray all the time. We need the servant girls. We need the people that think they know everything. And we need to come into a room and say, God, you are the only one that knows. And you're worthy of my night. There are a lot of us will Netflix binge a show all night because we don't want to not know what happens. Right? We just get caught in it. There have been times in prayer where you can get caught in it and you're like, wow, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. I've been praying for 4 or 5 hours. Um, but there's a lot of us walking around that just need to say, I need to learn to pray. Let's, let's, let me close in prayer together. Father, I thank you so much for the story of the early church. I thank you for just the way you use Luke. Thank you for the gift that he's been to my life this summer and this spring. And Lord, I pray that he's continuing to give life to our church and his writings through the power of your spirit. But Father, I confess, um, I want to I know how it all works out. Um, I want to know the reasons why you decide on some and not others in regards to where they're born and the pressures of their life and why some people are come out of the womb um, um, seemingly um, disadvantaged than others. Father, why some people get a lot and get selfish, but yet other people get a lot and get generous. Lord, I just, there's no mathematic equation for that. Lord, it's just it's Jesus and the Spirit and power. And Father, I ask that we would be like Jesus, that we would pray in the garden 
in the midst of our darkest hour that we would stand up and talk um, to crowds as well as we would spend time intimately with a small handful of people. And So, Father, you are remarkable, and you are also really hard to interpret sometimes. But you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise and and we, we come to you knowing that we are less than. And therefore, we just don't have the capacity to understand you fully. We thank you for what you have revealed to us and what we can be confident in. Father, I pray today for those that are hurting and broken, that you would be the restorer and the rebuilder. Lord, I pray that for those that are walking in great joy, that they would be... Um, contagious. Lord, I know I could catch some joy from somebody today. It would be a huge blessing in my life. Lord, I pray that we um, can truly celebrate with one another. Father, we pray for those families that identify with James in this chapter, and we pray for those families that identify with Peter in this chapter. Uh, But Father, we are all part of your church, and so Lord, help us to find that unity and oneness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.